Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Joe Biden boasts about positive news in a new economic report. He also called MAGA Republicans the party of chaos and catastrophe during a Virginia speech. Investigating government overreach and abuse of power, members of a new subcommittee say they want to find out how certain abuses happened to prevent them in the future. 25 states are suing the Biden administration. They're challenging a new rule regarding people's 401k money. The fear is prioritizing climate change over profit. New developments in the 2021 hate crime assault in New York City. Outrage from the parents of the Jewish victim over a reported plea deal. Was the DA's reasoning sound or flawed? We bring you analysis. In China, an internal document shows a six-fold jump of deaths in one single city in recent months. We'll dive into the data and look at a recent exodus of Americans from Hong Kong. President Joe Biden talked up accomplishments in his first two years during a speech in Virginia yesterday. He boasted about the current state of the economy and warned that plans from House Republicans are dangerous. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. Economic growth is up. Biden said he's not sure if the news could have been any better. He touted the positive numbers in the economic report released on Thursday. It showed the U.S. economy expanded at nearly 3% from October through December, and employers added 4.5 million jobs in 2022. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate of 3.5% matched a 53-year low. And over the past six months, inflation has gone down every month, and God willing, will continue to do that. Biden also championed legislation passed in his first two years, such as the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. The president's speech then took a more critical turn. So is another group, the House Republican leadership. As I said, it's not your father's Republican Party. It's a different breed of cat. Biden called them extreme MAGA Republicans. Not all Republicans are there, but a distinct minority of 30 to 40 percent of them. As I said, they seem determined to be the party of chaos and catastrophe. He then touched on the debt limit. Republicans are calling for spending cuts before any increase. Biden says he won't let anyone use the full faith and credit of the United States as a bargaining chip. There is one principal person in this town that is talking about a default of the debt, and that is Joe Biden. Senator Rand Paul says the Republican majority in the House will not vote to raise the debt ceiling without significant budget reform. The greatest threat to our country is, and the greatest threat to our national security is the debt. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy responded to Biden's speech on Twitter, saying, If Biden is so eager to speak on the economy, then he should set a date to discuss a responsible debt ceiling increase. McCarthy added that lawmakers must address Washington's irresponsible government spending. According to Biden, the risk of a recession appears to be fading. But many analysts believe the U.S. economy is not out of the danger zone yet. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. President Biden has named former COVID-19 policy coordinator Jeff Zients as his next chief of staff. An official transition will take place next week. Zients served as the White House COVID-19 coordinator from early 2021 until last April. He was also economic advisor during the Obama administration. Zients' return to the White House marks a pivotal moment as Biden prepares to seek a second four-year term in 2024. Chief of Staff is seen as one of the most important positions in the White House. He's the person who drives the president's policy agenda and ensures appropriate staff members are hired. 
Twitter CEO Elon Musk met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries yesterday. Musk wrote on Twitter that he met with the pair to discuss ensuring that the platform is fair to both parties. McCarthy declined to comment on what was discussed, saying only, he came for my birthday. The California Republican turned 58 on Thursday. The meeting between Musk and congressional leaders comes as the House Oversight Committee is planning to hold a hearing next month. The focus is Twitter and how it handled a story about Hunter Biden's laptop. The House GOP conference members have promised rigorous oversight into big tech and social media platforms. They have accused both of conservative censorship. Republican members of a new subcommittee say they want to investigate government overreach and possible abuses of power. However, Democrats say the subcommittee is just a Republican ploy. House representatives established the new select subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Members of the committee told the Epoch Times that they will investigate any area where the federal government has abused its power and violated the rights of citizens. Some Democrats have criticized the panel. They're calling it a Republican ploy to shield allies from ongoing criminal investigations, such as the January 6th Capitol breach and those into former President Trump. Representative Jim McGovern called it nothing more than a deranged ploy by the MAGA extremists who have hijacked the party and want to use taxpayer money to push their far-right conspiracy nonsense. Subcommittee members dismiss these allegations. They say that the panel is focused on government and law enforcement overreach. One congressman described those as the signature abuse of power of our time. Representative Thomas Massey told the Epoch Times that he hopes members of both parties can work together, saying, quote, in the 10 years that I've been here, I've been able to find Democrat co-sponsors to reign in the spying state and I hope that the Democrats will place some of their members on the subcommittee who are genuine and have been genuine in the past. Some of the things the committee will focus on first are abuses by the Department of Justice and FBI, the legality of vaccine mandates, disinformation about GOP-sponsored election security laws, censorship by big tech firms under government pressure, the Russia collusion hoax. Representative Mike Johnson told the Epoch Times that they'll examine how these abuses happened how to correct them, and how to make sure the abuses won't happen again. The members emphasize that the subcommittee isn't just relegated to investigating specific abuses or certain departments. NTD reached out to the Department of Justice for comment, but did not immediately hear back. A coalition of 25 states is suing the Biden administration. The issue is a Department of Labor rule that affects millions of retirement accounts. The new rule allows 401k managers to invest clients' money in environmental, social, and governance, or ESG, funds. The states argue this violates the Employee Recruitment Income Security Act of 1974, and that's because it lets fund managers consider and promote non-financial benefits when making investment decisions. The lawsuit says the rule puts the retirement savings of 152 million workers at risk. It adds that the rule is promoting the Biden administration's climate agenda. Lawmakers submitted more than 140 amendments Thursday as the House opened its amendment process for the first time in seven years. With Republicans in control of the House, any House member can submit an amendment as long as they do so before a bill is debated. The biggest proposed change involved an oil-related bill that seeks to limit the president's ability to release oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It would force the federal government to draw up a plan that would boost the percentage of federal lands leased for oil and gas production. 
A number of the amendments were passed or rejected by voice vote on Thursday. The House is expected to vote on the entire bill today. Some Democrats had positive reviews of the modified open rule process, noting that it also gives them the opportunity to have their amendments added into legislation. Five fired Memphis police officers were charged with murder yesterday for the killing of Tyree Nichols, a motorist who died three days after a run-in with them during a traffic stop. Here's entity's Jeremy Sandberg with more on the ongoing investigation. The fired officers each faced charges of second-degree murder, aggravated assault, aggravated kidnapping, official misconduct, and official oppression. Local District Attorney Steve Mulroy says although the officers each played different roles, they are all responsible. We had previously met with the family of Tyree Nichols to go over what these charges were going to be. Body cam footage from the officers will be released to the public Friday evening. Mulroy says releasing the video too early in the investigation could have influenced suspects and witnesses. Suspects could tailor their statements to law enforcement based on what they've seen in the video. David Rausch, director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, says what he saw in the video was absolutely appalling. What happened here does not at all reflect proper policing. This was wrong. This was criminal. Nichols' family attorneys say the footage shows them pepper spraying and restraining the 29-year-old before savagely beating him for three minutes. Tyree was helpless. He was defenseless. He was restrained. And that's why you're seeing the types of charges that you're seeing here. The family is urging supporters to protest peacefully. Nichols' mother says she doesn't want anyone burning up the city or tearing up the streets because that's not what her son stood for. Members of the community held a candlelight vigil for Nichols Thursday night and called for justice. Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Relatives are accusing the officers of causing Nichols to have a heart attack and kidney failure. Second-degree murder is punishable by 15 to 60 years in prison under Tennessee law. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Two EMTs with the Memphis Fire Department were also fired. Additional officers are under investigation. Four of the five former officers indicted are out on bail. One is still in jail. Authorities in Philadelphia have arrested two adults and 11 juveniles. It's in connection with a string of burglaries at gun stores across the city. 93 firearms were stolen in total. Only 33 were recovered by law enforcement. The Montgomery County District Attorney says the suspects will face charges in connection to three burglaries and one attempted burglary. He says the stolen firearms were sold and transferred throughout southeastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. Detectives discovered that some of the suspects are part of a juvenile street gang called 54th Street. Investigators say they have evidence the gang was planning two additional gun store burglaries. It's a criminal activity commonly associated with 54th Street. At least two of the suspects were released after posting bail. In the wake of the shootings in Half Moon Bay, California, the farming community is relying on donations and basic supplies more than ever. And today's Andrew Thomas has the details on one particular organization that's stepping up to help. Ayudando Latinos a Soñar is at the forefront of relief efforts in Half Moon Bay, California. The organization held a food drive on Thursday. Volunteers loaded up cars with boxes filled with chicken, bread, and other perishables. Resident Margarita Carateras Garcia says a loss is a lifeline. Well, we thank them for their work because it supports many people in need and more than anything with what is happening right now. 
versus the storms because that prevented people from going out. There was no work. The men are farmers. They don't work. They need food for their children. They help a lot. They're helping a lot. That's why I thank them. Joaquin Jimenez is a program director at ALAS. He says there's been high demand for the organization's services since the pandemic hit in 2020. No, since the pandemic, you know, it's been non-stop for us. You know, we, we have been on the front lines, you know, providing a lot of resources, you know, for communities, especially for Pamukki community that, have, that has been neglected for, you know, for decades. Alas was preparing to distribute food boxes to farmers hit hard by recent storms. Monday, shooting has left the community even more in need of help. I mean, we haven't stopped at all. But right now, you know, high alert, you know, our community needs us. They've been needing us for, for years, but we are still here. They know we have this incident. You know, the shooting is a, it's a tragedy that we lost seven community members, seven family members. For Pedro Velasquez, the organization has been a big help. For me, it is the best because it has helped us a lot in these past years. They have always supported us with everything we've needed and the entire community. And thanks to that, we have food. When we don't have food, we come and they offer. If we don't have this or that, they help us with something and we spend less. The Half Moon Bay community appreciates the support even more so in the wake of tragedy. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, how smart can machines be? A U.S. media outlet plans to use artificial intelligence in content creation. And in another case, an AI chatbot passed exams for an Ivy League college. We have that and more just after this break. BuzzFeed stock jumped 150% Thursday after announcing its use of artificial intelligence to create content. BuzzFeed plans to work with ChatGPT, creator of OpenAI, to create quizzes and help with brainstorming but will not use AI when writing news stories. Company co-founder and CEO Jonah Peretti says AI-inspired content will now be part of their core business. Media industry leaders say artificial intelligence will revolutionize the content creation businesses. The Associated Press began using artificial intelligence to automate news stories nearly a decade ago. The powerful new artificial intelligence chatbot tool, ChatGPT, is smart enough to pass prestigious graduate-level exams, but not with the highest marks. It recently passed law exams at four courses at the University of Minnesota and another exam at University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business. That's according to professors at the schools. At the U of M Law School, the bot performed on average at the level of a C-plus student, achieving a low but passing grade in all four courses. Over at Penn and Ivy League School, it earned a B to B-minus grade in a business management course exam at the Wharton School. A business professor there says the bot did an amazing job at answering basic operations management and process analysis questions, but it struggled with more advanced prompts. He said it made surprising mistakes with basic math, mistakes that can be massive in significance. The New York City bike path killer has been found guilty of 28 federal crimes. He now faces a possible death penalty. With a speeding truck, the Islamic extremist killed eight people in Lower Manhattan in 2017. Prosecutors say he was inspired by a reverence for the ISIS terrorist group. 
After two days of deliberations, the jury found him guilty of murder in aid of racketeering, as well as supporting a foreign terrorist group. The panel is hearing more evidence to determine whether he should be executed or spend the rest of his life in prison. A federal jury in New York has not rendered a death sentence that withstood legal appeals in decades with the last execution in 1954. Authorities have identified a woman found dead in a canvas bag over 50 years ago. The local community rallied to raise funds for DNA testing to uncover the mysterious death. The body was found in an Arizona desert near a highway. We now know it was the remains of Colleen Audrey Rice. The money for DNA testing came in after the sheriff's office pledged $1,000 and asked the community to pitch in the rest. The remaining $6,500 was raised in five days. According to what is known about her, she was born in Ohio. She was estranged from her family, and it's not clear why she was in Arizona. She married a man in 1946 and would have been 39 at the time of her death. Authorities are now looking for those responsible for her death. California's last nuclear power plant is on its last legs, but despite funding, lawmakers face hurdles renewing it. Federal regulators rejected Pacific Gas and Electric's application to extend the plant's life. The application was originally submitted in 2009, and regulators say it needs to be updated before they can consider it. The Diablo Canyon plant is located midway between Los Angeles and San Francisco. It's planned to close in 2025. But California lawmakers, along with Governor Gavin Newsom, agreed in September to spend $1.4 billion to keep it running until 2030. The state has faced energy shortages in recent years. Its aggressive plan to eliminate fossil fuels has at times failed to deliver enough power to supply residents' homes and businesses. For most American students, school lunch consists of bland, mass-produced, reheated meals they'd rather skip. But a small but growing number of school districts are upgrading their cafeteria menus with local organic produce, grass-fed meats, and made-from-scratch recipes. School lunches are getting a makeover in Northern California's Mount Diablo Unified School District. Culinary manager Josh Jerzan is using the skills he learned cooking at Michelin-starred restaurants to reimagine what school lunch can be. When you think of schools and you think of the cafeterias, they should look like restaurants. They should feel like restaurants and not fast food chains, and that's kind of what they feel like. So for me, it had a lot to do with using my talents to serve the community and using my talents to serve and feed kids a better quality product. The Mount Diablo students are benefiting from a trend away from mass-produced reheated meals. People just see school lunch or they'll hear, oh, I have to get school lunch, and they'll automatically think, ew, gross, I have to get school lunch. I'd rather just wait till after school and get regular food. Its lunch menus are filled with California-grown fruits and vegetables, grass-fed meats, and recipes that defy the image of inedible school food. On a recent day in January, Jerzand and his cafeteria staff prepared new dishes for students to taste test at Mount Diablo High School. Among the offerings were a baguette sandwich with Toscano salami, Monterey Jack cheese and fresh arugula, and Mexican-style flautas with free-range chicken simmered in chipotle broth. The experimental items were a hit with students participating in the taste test. Some of those dishes could be incorporated into the regular cafeteria menu. I think if they're serving this on a regular basis demonstrates and proves to us as students that we're being seen, we're being valued, and we're being respected.
Still, among American school children, they are in the lucky minority. Making meals from scratch requires significant investment, and in many areas, an overhaul of how school lunchroom kitchens have operated for decades. Supply chain disruptions tied to the COVID-19 pandemic and inflation have only made it harder on school nutrition directors, widening gaps in access to affordable, high-quality food. But more money from the state helped Mount Diablo to buy healthier, fresher ingredients and higher jersand. The school's nutrition director, Dominic Maki, works with local farms, bakers, creameries, and fishermen to supply almost all ingredients used by its schools, which serve 30,000 students. What we found is, is that students, by eating healthy, nutritious, scratch-made meals, they transfer that positive experience they've had with us into the classroom, and it supports their academic uh, achievements. School meals also are entirely free for students in California, one of several states that have been paying to keep the meals free to all students. Still to come, about 20% of Americans have left Hong Kong in the past two years. One official says that's due to China's tough COVID-19 measures. Get the story after the break. Welcome back. Let's look at a few numbers from the COVID-19 crisis in China. In one city, the death toll has increased six-fold since last month. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more on that and the recent exodus of Americans from Hong Kong. How hard is COVID-19 hitting China right now? Chinese officials seem to be downplaying its impact. Here's a look at what's going on with infection cases and deaths in one Chinese city. Elderly people are dying every day. A community secretary told me before the new year that many elderly people had passed away, and eight or nine people each day are canceling household registrations with his office. Yet reports like these make up a small part of a much larger picture. According to an internal document obtained by the Epoch Times, the death toll in Nanjing has increased by six to seven-fold since mid-December. The document counted the number of cremations performed in the city from December to January. It recorded a daily peak of nearly 800 bodies cremated on January 2nd. Almost 500 deceased over the age of 80 were burned on January 4th, nearly sixfold in comparison to last year. The document listed a total of over 8,000 deaths in Nanjing within 16 days, nearly four times more than usual. I'm afraid of going outside now. Many older people used to enjoy basking in the sun at the gate. All of them died. COVID-19 is rarely mentioned as the official cause of death in internal documents from Nanjing. Beijing has placed strict controls on how COVID-19 deaths can be attributed. Another internal document outlined how personnel are tasked with guarding cremation, the disposal of remains and funeral data. It also prohibits all funeral services in the city from leaking cremation information. How is China's handling of COVID-19 affecting Hong Kong? One figure may shed some light. About 15,000 Americans have left Hong Kong in the past two years. The number comes from Gregory May, the U.S. Consul General in Hong Kong, and makes up more than 20% of all Americans living in Hong Kong. May cited stringent anti-COVID-19 measures and diminishing freedoms as reasons for leaving. 
He further raised concerns about Hong Kong's faltering judicial independence. Last month, Beijing made a decision to bar foreign lawyers from state security trials unless they get approval from authorities. The move mainly targeting activists arrested during the city's pro-democracy movement in 2020. Beijing imposed a national security law on Hong Kong in 2021. It allows authorities to punish anything they deem to be subversion, secession, collusion with foreign powers or terrorism. And penalties can include life imprisonment. Before the rule took effect, the legislation sparked large-scale protests among Hong Kong citizens. A complete ban on CBD products will start in Hong Kong beginning February 1st. CBD is to be classified as a dangerous drug. Authorities further announced that smuggling, production, and possession will be subject to harsh penalties. CBD is derived from the cannabis plant and doesn't have the psychoactive effects of THC, another component in the plant, which is already illegal in Hong Kong. Supporters say CBD can treat a range of ailments, including anxiety and chronic pain. It was previously sold legally in many bars and shops. Hong Kong residents were given three months beginning October 27th to dispose of any CBD products. Special disposal boxes were set up around the city. Senator Ted Cruz has proposed new legislation that would block the U.S. from selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China and Chinese Communist Party-owned companies. The Texas lawmaker cited a report that the Biden administration last year sold nearly 6 million barrels of oil from the reserve to Chinese state-owned company Sinopec. Cruz said that President Biden sold a portion of, quote, this critical national security asset to the Chinese Communist Party when the CCP was stockpiling oil for its own strategic use. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said that Biden will veto the bill if it passes Congress. Granholm warned Republicans that limiting the president's authority to tap the nation's oil reserves would undermine national security, cause crude oil shortages, and raise gasoline prices. Now we take a look at the most powerful helicopter in the U.S. military. It's capable of lifting the F-35C stealth fighter. The U.S. Marine Corps has released footage of the new build, the CH-53K King Stallion. The new footage shows the chopper hoisting a U.S. Navy fighter jet in the air. This was during an exercise in Maryland this past December. The U.S. Navy put the King Stallion into service in April 2022. The helicopter reportedly has a maximum payload capacity of 36,000 pounds. This compares with the Lockheed Martin-produced F-35C, which weighs about 35,000 pounds empty. Amid growing threats from China, the Navy says should a war break out in the Indo-Pacific, the new helicopter can move damaged F-35Cs from remote islands. That's to protect sensitive technologies. A former student at the University of Chicago is found guilty of spying for China. The Chinese regime has repeatedly insisted that it doesn't steal U.S. trade or military secrets, but in recent years, Washington has convicted dozens of Chinese spies. One of them was just sentenced on Wednesday. Ji Chao Chun was given eight years in prison for spying in the U.S. He came to America on a student visa in 2013. In 2018, he was accused of identifying American scientists and engineers that could be recruited by a Chinese intelligence unit. His case was reportedly linked to Chinese efforts to steal U.S. aviation trade secrets, including military suppliers. Over to the Philippines, the International Criminal Court, or ICC, has reopened an investigation into the country's drug war. 
There were suspected rights abuses during the crackdown on drug dealers. The ICC probe was suspended in November 2021 at Manila's request. The country said it was implementing its own investigations and prosecutions. But ICC judges on Thursday approved its prosecutor's request to reopen the investigation. They said they weren't satisfied with the Philippines' investigation. Then-President Rodrigo Duterte's war on drugs has been blamed for the deaths of more than 6,200 people, mostly small-time drug dealers. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, dubbed the top Nazi hunter, a German prosecutor is pushing for the conviction of all Holocaust suspects despite their increasing age. A new Holocaust museum honors Jewish victims and lesser known groups persecuted by the Nazis. Visitors get a glimpse of victims and survivors' lives. More shortly here on NTD News Today. New developments in the hate crime assault that took place at a pro-Israel rally in Times Square in May two years ago. The family says the actions of the chief prosecutor are disgusting after learning about the punishment for one of the accused attackers, Wasim Awada. I wanted to learn more about this, so I spoke with a human rights attorney. Joining me now is Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Gerard, thank you for coming on to discuss this important topic. Thank you so much for having me. It has been reported that Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg offered a plea deal of six months in jail to the man who allegedly attacked Joseph Borgen. The attacker was partly charged with assault as a hate crime. Can you give us some legal precedent as to what type of punishment would be appropriate here, given that some have called this a light sentence? Well, it would absolutely be a light sentence. Uh, An assault of this nature was charged as a Class C felony, meaning that the attacker was looking at a minimum of three and a half years behind bars. So this plea deal is uncharacteristically lenient, especially for a defendant who, when he was arrested, said, if I could do it again, I would. So this isn't someone who is showing remorse. This is not someone who shows uh, that he understands that what he did was wrong. This is letting a violent offender off the hook for a very serious attack. Yes, no remorse. That is concerning. Bragg's office defended the plea deal, saying the attacker did not initiate the attack and left before it was over. Legally speaking, does this typically make a difference? No, none whatsoever. The, the, what matters is that the attack took place, and what matters is that the victim was targeted specifically because he was Jewish, hence the hate crime en- en- enhancement. The, the issue here is not that, you know, he stumbled by an attack. He went to Times Square looking to cause trouble. Uh, he and his cohort were involved in a gang attack on Joseph Borgen. There were other attacks in the area as well on Jews on that day. This was all part of a greater action to target Jews in the area and to say that this was just a passerby who happened on a scene, took a crutch and struck Joseph repeatedly, injuring him badly. It's a joke to say that this was a minor attack. Charges of hate crimes, gang attacks, these are very serious things. Anti-Semitic attacks in New York City have seen alarming numbers lately. For example, the NYPD said in November last year they were up 125%. Can you please tell us more about the legal protections the Jewish community has a right to? Well, absolutely. This is one of the problems. One of the legal protections is the enforcement of hate crime laws. And when we have district attorneys like Alvin Bragg who try to enter into plea deals with lenient sentences, those protections are simply not there. When you have high sentences for violent attacks, you're sending the message that there are consequences. Without them, it's open season on New York City Jews and and Jews around the world. 
The other part is Jews have a right to have their civil rights enforced and protected. We have federal laws to that. We have state laws to that. There should not be target of discrimination and hatred. And these laws need to be enforced. People need to take advantage of the legal system and bring actions to uphold their civil rights. We have laws for a reason. They need to be enforced. And as you know, today is International Holocaust Remembrance Day. NATO has marked the day with a solemn ceremony at its headquarters. Can you tell us more about what challenges Jews are facing domestically and abroad? Well, around the world, and especially in the United States, we have seen a tremendous increase in violent attacks and just in anti-Semitism in general in the last few years. The challenges we've seen people taken hostage in synagogues. We've seen attacks on Jews on the streets of Brooklyn and cities around the world. We see people conflating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with an excuse, an open excuse to express their Jew hatred. These are concerns that are growing, which is why when it comes to New York City and Alvin Bragg, we have issues when the laws that protect the Jewish people are not adequately enforced. Yesterday at the hearing, the plea deal was not actually entered into or offered publicly. In part, there was a protest outside the courtroom headed by the End Jew Hatred Movement, which is one of the reactions to the growing anti-Semitism worldwide. We have grassroots efforts that are taking to the streets to demand justice, and that justice is protected by groups like the Lawfare Project, who fight to uphold them. Since the plea deal was not offered publicly, we will have to keep a close eye on what happens here. Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And for Holocaust Remembrance Day, we've got a series of stories for you. The first about Germany's top Nazi hunter, Thomas Will. He's trying to secure convictions, even as many of the remaining suspects are in their late 90s. Prowling through row upon row of filing cabinets, German prosecutor Thomas Will is racing against the clock to find justice for the Holocaust. Will has been called Germany's top Nazi hunter for his dogged determination to secure convictions against the remaining suspects accused of committing atrocities against the Jews during the Second World War. However, many of those he's seeking to convict are now in their late 90s. How much longer our work continues depends on the fact that murder is not subject to a statute of limitations. So as long as perpetrators are still alive, we will pursue the cases. Will heads up Germany's central office of state judicial authorities for the investigation of national socialist crimes. The organization, founded in 1958, has launched more than 7,600 investigations into World War II-era crimes. One recent case is former SS guard Joseph S., who was sentenced to five years in prison last June for assisting in the murder of some 3,500 people at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. Just in December, a 97-year-old woman who worked as a concentration camp secretary was also convicted. Will describes that case as one of the last but a handful remain outstanding, and he believes they have a chance of going to trial. We currently have five proceedings pending with prosecutors where there's no decision yet on an indictment or a closing of the proceedings. Normally, proceedings are closed because the accused are unable to appear in court. So the five proceedings relating to the concentration camps of Buchenwald, Ravensbrück, Neuengam, and Sachsenhausen are still ongoing. I am curious myself how it will turn out. As survivors of the Holocaust die, there are fears that knowledge of the genocide of six million European Jews across German-occupied Europe could decline or be denied. Continuing convictions highlight the crimes that took place 
Will says his work also sends a signal to anyone committing such acts today that they will never be off the hook. Now we turn to another story of perseverance, a Holocaust survivor who has fled Ukraine twice. She shares her story of living through two eras of violence. Ia Rudzitskaya, who is Jewish, has fled Kyiv twice. First in 1941, when German bombs started falling on the then Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. She was just 10 years old. The second time came last year, when Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Sitting in the small one-bedroom flat she shares with her son Arthur in Krakow, Poland, the 92-year-old says she did not believe a Russian invasion of Ukraine could ever happen. Now it is incomprehension, because before the Germans were the enemy, you know, I don't understand the Russians' actions. Her grandfather, Nuhim Weisblatt, was once the main rabbi in the Ukrainian capital. Her father, Vladimir, was a writer and book publisher for high-profile Ukrainian authors. In July 1941, during Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union, Rudzitskaya woke up to the sound of bombs. Dad said in a panic that we have to leave, we need to pack and leave. But it was already impossible to leave, because already by July 9th, there was such terrible panic. Everybody who could was fleeing. Her family fled first to Kharkiv in eastern Ukraine. From there, they traveled thousands of miles across the Soviet Union to Tashkent, the capital of present-day Uzbekistan. Rudzitskaya remembers they left just eight days before the Babinyar massacre took place. Nazis murdered some 34,000 Ukrainian Jews, one of the biggest single massacres of Jews during the Holocaust. Russian shells struck close to the Babinyar Memorial in March of 2022. Rudzitskaya's family returned to Kyiv after the war. She got a job as a typographist and started her family. After passing through 10 different apartments since fleeing Kyiv with the help of a synagogue last year, Rudzitskaya and her son now have a somewhat stable flat. But she says she wants to go home. Second gentleman Douglas Emhoff is traveling this week to visit Auschwitz in Poland. Vice President Kamala Harris's husband is the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president he has made countering the recent rise in global anti-Semitism a priority. Emhoff plans to renew a pledge to never forget on the trip and to help educate the next generation about the Holocaust. Across the globe in Brazil, a new Holocaust memorial and museum sits atop a hill in Rio de Janeiro. The monument honors Jewish victims and lesser-known groups persecuted by the Nazis. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. The words, Thou shalt not kill, are inscribed on the bottom of the monument at the Holocaust Memorial in Rio de Janeiro. It is one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and here at this place, we are trying to show what the life of the Holocaust victims was like. Not only the Jewish, but all the victims from different minorities that were persecuted, so we can reflect about intolerance and discrimination. A tunnel behind the Central Hall depicts victims' lives before, during, and after the Holocaust. The first section features colorized photos of birthdays, traditions, and day-to-day lives of the victims. We know that the Jews were the preferential victims during Nazism, but in our exhibition, we contemplate the Roma, black people, people with disabilities, gay and political opponents for different reasons. From there, the memorial's visitors can pass into the second section. 
There, they are suddenly bathed in sepia-toned light. But graphic images of concentration camps and starved bodies don't appear. Instead, visitors can imagine themselves in victims' shoes. They stand on footprints to hear recordings of victims' accounts. On the wall, there are illustrations of individual stories, which visitors can activate by approaching this wall. Kurt Homburger was only eight years old, but remembers well that night of November 8, 1938, that left a trail of violence and broken glass and was known as the Night of the Broken Glass. In the final part, life resumes in color for those who escaped the genocide. Holocaust survivor Alfred Sabatka recalls the degradation of the camp. You didn't have a name. You had a number. You didn't exist. When they called me on the speakers, they called me by my number. You didn't exist as a name for them, you know? According to the latest census, Brazil's Jewish population was around 107,000 in 2010. Many of them are descendants of people who fled anti-Semitism in Europe in the 20th century. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Federal prosecutors say this woman swindled an 87-year-old Holocaust survivor out of more than $2.8 million. The unidentified man met 36-year-old Florida woman Peaches Sturgo, also known as Alice, on a dating website several years ago. Just like in the Netflix series The Tinder Swindler, she used a variety of excuses to get him to send her money, always with the promise she would pay him back. Instead, she used that money to buy a home in a gated community, a condominium, a boat, and numerous cars, including a Corvette. By the time the man admitted to his son what he had done, he had given her his entire life savings. She is now facing charges in federal court. The Federal Trade Commission reports romance scams cost victims $547 million in 2021. According to the AARP, elderly singles are frequently targeted. Up next, it could take months for U.S. tanks to be delivered to Ukraine. Reports say the Pentagon doesn't have enough of them in excess at the moment. A new rule for transgender offenders in Scotland. The government says male rapists identified as female won't serve time in all female prisons. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. President Biden has promised to send tanks to Ukraine, but it could be months before they are delivered. That's because there's not enough of them in stock right now. The New York Post reported that the Pentagon doesn't have enough Abrams tanks in its stockpile. A Pentagon spokeswoman told the news outlet, quote, it is going to take months to transfer these M1A2 Abrams to Ukraine. President Biden announced Wednesday that the U.S. will send 31 Abrams tanks to support Ukraine in the war against Russia. The tanks will have to be procured with funds from the Pentagon's Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. Over in the Middle East, tension is brewing between Iran and its neighbor Azerbaijan. A gunman opened fire at Azerbaijan's embassy in Iran earlier today. Security footage showed a gunman opening fire inside Azerbaijan's embassy and Iran's capital, Tehran. Police said the gunman killed the embassy security chief and wounded two others. Police had arrested a suspect and are investigating his motive. Azerbaijan's president called the attack an act of terrorism and demanded swift punishment. Azerbaijan is a former Soviet republic that has friendly ties with the U.S. It's had difficult diplomatic relations with Iran. 
The Scottish government has confirmed that a convicted double rapist who now identifies as a woman will not be imprisoned in a woman's jail. Adam Graham started to identify as a woman while awaiting trial. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said Isla Bryson, a male rapist who now identifies as a woman, will not serve time in Scotland's only all-female prison. Now, it would not be appropriate for me, in respect of any prisoner, to give details of where they are being incarcerated. But given the understandable public and parliamentary concern in this case, I can confirm to Parliament that this prisoner will not be incarcerated at Corton Vale Women's Prison. And I hope that provides assurance to the public. Sturgeon said the Scottish Prison Service is carrying out a risk assessment. Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross raised the case at First Minister's questions. He questioned why Bryson had initially been placed in the female-only jail prior to sentencing. This double rapist only decided to change gender after he was charged by the police. It took the threat of jail for this criminal to decide to change his gender. That's not a coincidence, that is a conscious decision. Now, the First Minister is hiding behind the Scottish Prison Service, but they are a government agency accountable to SNP ministers. Bryson, previously known as Adam Graham, was on Tuesday found guilty of raping two women in 2016 and 2019. Bryson's estranged wife claims Bryson's decision to change gender was a sham. Meanwhile, the UK government said it will publish updated guidelines regarding the allocation of transgender prisoners. The new policy means that male prisoners who identify as women and have male genitalia or who have been convicted of sexual offences will not serve their sentences in women's prisons unless there are exceptional circumstances. The Dutch government has advised its agencies against using TikTok, joining a growing list of governments keeping a close eye on the platform. It comes as both the EU and U.S. express concerns about privacy risks involving the Chinese regime-owned social media app. The recommendations have been largely observed by Dutch ministries and agencies. It involves not using the app for advertising and government communications. It follows previous advice requiring government agencies not to use TikTok until the platform makes necessary adjustments to its data protection policy. TikTok is a popular platform in the Netherlands with over 3 million users. And in Belgium, a group of firefighters protested outside the Belgian government headquarters today. They say they are concerned about being attacked while working. A union representative said one firefighter was resuscitating an unconscious victim when he was targeted by fireworks in December. Other firefighters have seen garden furniture being thrown at them from the top of buildings during their work. The union representative called on authorities to prosecute perpetrators. Police in Brussels said around 250 firefighters took part in the protest. They briefly interrupted road traffic before peacefully dispersing. And just ahead, performing arts that brings people together. Shen Yun is now touring the world. We'll have more on what audiences had to say coming up on NTD News. Shen Yun Performing Arts is touring the world with the mission of reviving lost Chinese culture. Here in the States, audiences appreciate the universal values that Shen Yun shows. 
The athleticism and the culture are phenomenal. Shenyun Performing Arts is wowing audiences throughout the states this week. It was inspiring. It was nothing less than inspiring to see the effortless technique, the lighting, the set, the costuming, all of it, all together was just, it was incredible. Audience members say they're impressed by the skills of Shenyun's artists. This is not an easy feat to jump in the air almost at six and seven feet 12 times. That takes work of art, athleticism and commitment, and it's very moving. They're all just incredible, um, incredibly skilled artists and performers themselves. You know, that takes years and years to do the things that they make look so easy. Melissa Marisage is a performer herself. She added that Chinyun's stories inspire her. It's easy to forget um, how special a human being is. We take it for granted, you know, that we have a spirit, we have an intellect, and we have a body, and we, we're a whole composite. And this reminds us of our kind of divine spark. Shenyun's mission is to revive traditional Chinese culture from before communism. What moved me is both the culture that's there and the fact that you're bringing culture that is being suppressed and the fact that there's a spirit behind the performers, but at the same time, a storytelling that tells the truth. So much has been lost then because of what the Communist Party has taken away. And it's beautiful that Shenyun is bringing that understanding back to the West. According to Shenyun's website, most of the artists practice Falun Gong, a Buddhist-based meditation system based on truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. They aim to bring the audience art of the purest form. Many in the audience remark on the virtues in the performance. Focus on those virtues is outstanding to have, and I think Shenyun helps brings that to the public there, that sometimes I think is lost. And that's something, it's a message not just for um, any one country, but a message for every country. And I like the spirituality, but also the fact that tolerance is involved no matter what religion. From the, every perspective and every angle, you come with it and you can see a different lens about values that are, you know, irregardless of nation or culture that are there that are, you know, universal. The group is performing in six cities this weekend, including Washington, D.C. and Memphis. Researchers in Egypt have uncovered pharaonic tombs that have been sealed for over 4,000 years. They were found near the Step Pyramid of Saqqara. The excavation site is 12 miles south of Cairo. Inside one of the tombs was a mummy. It was in a limestone sarcophagus that had been sealed in mortar since the original burial 4,300 years ago. The mummy was of a man and was covered in flakes of gold. The excavation team found it at the bottom of a 49-foot shaft. It belongs to the 5th and 6th dynasty. Egyptologists say Saqqara is a very important place and it reveals many important treasures. We found two tombs, one dating back to the era of King Yunus, the last of the kings of the 5th dynasty, and the other dating back to the era of King Bebe, the first from the 6th dynasty. We also found a collection of phantom doors and several shafts, two of which contain tombs that have been closed for 4,300 years. Other than the mummy, the excavation team also found 14 important statues. Nine of them belong to a man named Messi, and three of them belong to a man named Fatek. Another statue depicts a man with his wife and daughter. 
Among other tombs found at the site was one belonging to an inspector of officials, supervisor of nobles, and priest. It was from the reign of Yunas, the last pharaoh of the 5th dynasty. The tomb was decorated with scenes of daily life. Unfortunately, we can't stay young forever, and most of us will begin to experience a subtle but measurable decline in memory in our 50s. Let's get some tips on how to become superagers. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Dr. Marcel Mezalem is a neurologist at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He's the researcher who coined the term superages. This classifies older people whose memory and attention span were on par with that of a healthy 25-year-old. So what does it really boil down to? It's rather simple, being willing to do hard work both physically and mentally. It was once believed that puzzles like crosswords, jigsaw or sudoku were enough to stimulate older brains. But current research indicates that tasks involving more effort are needed, especially if you want to make a notable difference. The reason is when we perform difficult tasks, it helps crucial brain regions defy age-related atrophy. The thicker these regions are, the better we perform measurable tasks. So if you really want to become a super-ager, learn how to embrace the difficult in life. Remember how frustrated you got when you were trying to learn a new computer program or finish a long exhausting hike? That unwelcome sense of feeling tired and ready to give up is uniquely beneficial to our brain tissue. If like me you tend to wimp out, remember the motto, pain is weakness, leaving the body. You could also supplement it with helping the brain, or remind yourself that if you don't use it, you lose it. Naturally, genetic factors play a big role in how well we age, but lifestyle choices are also important. Stay physically active. Exercise stimulates the brain-derived neurotrophic factor that plays a role in helping the brain create valuable new neural connections don't smoke. Researchers have known for years that smoking compromises the well-being of almost every aspect of your health. Maintain social connections. Being isolated opens a door to depression, which can trigger harmful, unhealthy behaviours. Make sure you get adequate sleep. A good night's sleep is important. It contributes to memory consolidation because REM sleep is when we store new data for later retrieval. Pay close attention to your diet. A carefully planned eating program can diminish the risk of both Alzheimer's disease and dementia. You may want to consider the MIND diet with brain-healthy food groups and the DASH diet, dietary approaches to stop hypertension. Today is the perfect day to have your cake and eat it too. It's National Chocolate Cake Day. It's unclear who created the holiday, but who doesn't like an excuse to grab a slice of chocolate cake? As for the origin of the cake itself, it's believed the first one was made in 1765 when a doctor and a chocolate maker teamed up for the ultimate dessert. The first box cake mix was created by a company called O'Duffin Sons in the late 1920s. Betty Crocker released their first dry cake mixes in 1947. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.